This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's guest speaker is paving the way for digital rights and AI protocols with the World Economic Forum. He has championed for international protection and open access through the Yale Information Society Project, the European Digital Rights, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Listen in as Adon Katz and I discuss his initiatives for the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution at World Economic Forum, including Generation AI, Unlocking Public Sector AI, and how teaching AI ethics will create a more balanced ecosystem. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back, everyone, to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and today our guest speaker is Aidan Katz, who previously has served as the International Affairs Director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where he worked in advocacy initiatives at an international multi-stakeholder decision-making bodies in cybercrime, data privacy, intellectual property, and freedom of expression. He was also the first executive director of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School, where he taught cyber law, and he founded the Access to Knowledge Initiative. Adon has a JD from UC Berkeley, has a BA in philosophy from Yale, and today he's working at the World Economic Forum on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Thanks for being with us, Adon. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think cyber law is super important. As someone who lives in New York City, we're actually launching Cyber NYC very soon, which is an initiative partnered with NYU and the CUNY school system, including Facebook, Palantir, our local government. You've done a lot in the cyberspace. Why do you think it's so important that we're caring about security with our data? I think that we're now entering a stage where we have a lot of different types of relationships and the decentralized nature of our communications makes it so that things are connected together in a way that they haven't been before. And that sort of complexity between the physical environment and the digital environment in regards to the Internet of Things and the way in which information is processed means that more and more of our daily lives are impacted by the structure and rules around how digital context and the digital network environment is governed. Now, data is more than just governing and making sure it's managed properly. But if we think more micro level at each of our own rights and digital rights, you've done a lot of foundational work here as early as 2008, right? Way before GDPR became active. Why is international protection with our digital rights so important as well? I think the international aspect of it reflects the fact that our communications and our trade and our products and services don't obey the same physical borders as uh, we're used to in other contexts. So getting the rules to have some sort of harmonization across borders is the way that we can have more reliable and uh, resilient systems across the board so that there can be some stability to environment. Now, I know thinking about across the board, we've had our own version of legislation that's been passing in the U.S. recently. CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, was passed, and a lot of lawmakers and tech leaders in California, New York, and Washington, D.C. are thinking about, you know, is a version of GDPR going to be taking over the United States? And what does the future of data look like if so? Any thoughts on perhaps how you see that moving in the U.S.? Yeah, I think that there is more of a possibility for establishing some privacy norms in the U.S. than there's been since I've started working on these issues. Clearly, there's beginning to be some bipartisan support for some legislation. But having done uh, comparative law and privacy, understanding the differences between the data protection regime in Europe, uh, the privacy laws and regulations in the U.S. on the federal level and on the state level, there is a difference between how we tackle these issues. And in the U.S., some of the privacy protections, for example, in the banking and finance arenas and in health care, such as the HIPAA law, are much more fine-tuned and advanced than in other places. So while there isn't a data protection regime that is across all types of data and information, U.S. law is oriented towards strong privacy protection in different arenas. Data privacy as a whole, the fact that so much of the information that is covered by it ends up being reduced to ones and zeros and bits, makes it so that that type of industry-specific kind of legislation bleeds from, in actuality, that data bleeds from one context to another. And so it does make more sense now to treat things more holistically 
But in terms of the work that we're doing here, we're focused on identifying particular aspects and subsections of the problem. So one of the projects I'm working on, Generation AI, is focused on how privacy relates to how children interact with and are exposed to artificial intelligence. That's so interesting. You know, actually a few episodes ago on Humane, I had Tara Chiklovsky, who is the founder of Iridescent, and and she does a lot of work on the AI Family Challenge, which just concluded in San Francisco, where, you know, families from all over the world get to start discovering AI with their children who are in elementary school. She also does a project called Technovation Challenge, which is more for girls who code, who are in middle school and high school. And uh, we talked about countries such as Bolivia and Pakistan and Cameroon, where some of that work's going on. Why don't you share with me more how Generation AI is also bridging that gap for our children of the future? Yeah, so the Generation AI project is run by the World Economic Forum and the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, but in partnership with UNICEF, as an entity works in many different countries and has been focused on uh, implementation of child protection rules on a domestic level all over the world. And we're working in combination with them and also CPAR, a Canadian research agency, to supplement some of the thinking in regards to policy development with developmental education and science and researchers who are working on the latest research in regards to uh, how children can actually benefit from algorithmic and precision education, as it's begun to be called. And so we are trying to bring together two main entry points to advance norm setting in this context. One is focused more on corporate governance, that is what companies should do in regards to how they design, how they store data, how relationships with the users are processed but in addition, making that an aspirational commitment to some of the promises that AI can have, especially in regards to education for people with learning disabilities, there are a lot of opportunities in that kind of customization of the educational experience that's very promising. And so we want to both encourage companies to try to make those commitments to the public, but also make sure that things such as transparency of the way that the products and services work, the privacy of the child's information, and that the children's agency is respected along the way. In addition, we're working on public policy agreements, and through UNICEF, as I mentioned, uh, one area of particular focus is on the way that schools integrate AI, both in the classroom, but also in the way that rules are set up for use of computers and social media, etc. And through these different avenues of norm setting, we're hoping to advance ethical use of AI, particularly in this context, in regards to children. You know, when you think about children, uh, they're the future in what they're learning in technology, but it's also about the movement of children. I travel a lot and fly, and now when I, I fly through airports, especially internationally with Monterey and Mexico City, you know, you can't help but seeing the signage around where companies like Delta say, you know, if you're seeing children, you know, are they actually part of these families or is it part of trafficking? And, and I think this is an interesting problem that 
that is a big problem that perhaps AI and machine learning can help solve. For one, now all the airlines are moving to facial recognition and they're using that to you know, verify if you should be on the flight, if you are who you say you are. And there's a lot of issues going on that I'm really concerned with. You mentioned you're looking to have a positive impact on children with AI and ML. What are some of those projects that maybe yourself or your colleagues are working on for that as well? So we're thank you. We're also working on a facial recognition project. As the uh, Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution is set up here, we have fellows from different governments, and with fellows from France, we're trying to implement some rules regarding the implementation and deployment of facial recognition in public contexts. So, for example, in France, over some of the public utility, the, the transportation networks, the way that facial recognition is being used. There are both opportunities for, as you mentioned, it to improve the safety of individuals. You called out children in specific, but there are other aspects of authentication and uh, after the fact, crime fighting that may be relevant. But it's important when laying these out at the beginning to carve out what the rules and parameters and boundaries are for the use, how that data is processed, and to make sure that it is used solely for the purposes of either authentication or whatever other transaction is necessary to enable good processing and and more efficient use of of the public services. But before they get deployed, we need to lay out all of the scaffolding for how it'll be used and how the data will be integrated into other contexts further down the line, making sure that there isn't commercial exploitation without permission that takes place and other kinds of parameters that need to be kept in mind. You know, earlier in May 2019, I attended an AI conference in New York City hosted by Lazard Asset Management. And uh, Jay Jacob, one of their managing directors, posed a question to the audience, which included actually uh, Virginia Nicholson from Google. And it was about thinking of healthcare, thinking about healthcare for children and thinking about early detection with companies like Memorial Sloan Kettering, one of the major hospital providers here in the U.S., be okay with sharing their data with companies like Google, especially with HIPAA compliance. And I thought the question was so interesting because you just mentioned a really fascinating point, Adon, which is authentication is the key, right? If you can authenticate your data and make sure the rest is secure and private, then this is something that should be possible, right? That organizations can share their algorithms and share their data with each other, and then you get to maintain corporate governance. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that there also just needs to be as much transparency as to how the process is being designed and where the data goes. And there are, as part of the conversation in regards to corporate governance, there are also ways in which the reporting structure within a company should be consulted in regards to making decisions, and that's going to another project that one of my colleagues is working on empowering AI leadership. So this is a corporate governance tool for boards at different companies and to allow, make better decisions based on the corporate structures, the internal processes, decisions in regards to crisis management and public engagement and enabling it through that way. Now, Thinking more of corporate governance, I know AI is such a buzz field world that we're 
seeing, and we're also talking about this as a word that some of my colleagues say, oh, well, actuarial science became predictive analytics, which became data science, which became AI. So for leadership, your colleagues and yourself are thinking to empower others. How do we even start with just educating about AI and what it is? I think it's a great point. I think people need to understand what it is and what is different about aggregated data and artificial intelligence. I think machine learning, deep learning. I think there's an opportunity when explaining how individual products and services work, that there's in that context, a way for people to begin to understand the dynamics. So what is it that is just storing data and bridging it together and how much of it has to do with combining insights and bringing together different types of information and finding patterns and more sophisticated ways of identifying possible routes and solutions to how an algorithm is designed. And I think the more the people will begin to understand that, the way that intersects with their expectations of daily life will allow everyone to be able to make better decisions. Because as you say, it's hyped both in its promise but also in the fears. I think the fears can sometimes get exaggerated when there's a lack of realistic understanding. Right, and I think those fears have most recently become even more exaggerated. Just earlier, right, in May 2019, San Francisco was the first city in the U.S. to ban facial recognition. And it's so fascinating because as soon as that ban went in, and the next day, it's been on the legislative ballot in New York City and in Albany and in Syracuse. And I took a stance back. I said, whoa, what, what is going on? Even Amazon's board of advisors said, no, you should not ban facial recognition. I mean, what's your take on how that information should be used for the public and for the private sector? Well, I think in addition to San Francisco, Oakland, where I live, is also considering such legislation, I think. When looking at it closely, the point is that we understand how these systems work, acknowledge their shortcomings at this point, understand the implications of false positives and other ways in which there are errors in its application before it gets deployed publicly and to be introduced and vetted and become ubiquitous in, in uh, our public lives, we should make sure it works right. And so this is why our project focused on racial recognition, facial recognition is about establishing those guidelines and expectations. If there are rules laid out beforehand that both enable the public to understand how it works, instill some transparency in the process, and enable some accountability of how the information is used and how bias is prevalent in the decision-making process and in the input into the information, once those things become more clear, once there is greater understanding amongst the broad range of stakeholders, can we more safely and usefully implement facial recognition? Hey humans, are you accumulating lots of listening minutes for your podcast, but not being rewarded for your listening time? There's a new app available now called PodCoin where you can listen to podcasts and donate your listening time to charity. PodCoin gives you the opportunity to be rewarded for listening to your favorite podcasts. Whether you're listening to Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, or Terry Gross, or even Humane, PodCoin is the new app 
for you to give back for your listening minutes. Check it out on the App Store. And so we did need to have those structures set up. And I think that's what the reaction is in regards to facial recognition on the city and national level. Yeah, I'm wondering whether those legislation structures in the U.S. is going to become more on an entire country level or going to be just city by city, right? San Francisco passes, Oakland moves forward, then Sacramento and L.A. makes a change and all these suddenly start boiling up to the national level. But as a researcher myself, I think, is this causing harm for AI research in the U.S. compared to the global rise in AI for countries in Asia? So that's always a consideration in the international context, which is why earlier I was mentioning the importance of trying to think globally and think about harmonizing norms on a greater level, because there is, there can be uh, regulatory loopholes that can be created if there are some ways in which there are lack of restrictions on how AI is used in some jurisdictions as opposed to others. And it can create um, havens where certain types of activity can take place and not in others. And that's uh, not good for the long-term stability of innovation. There are aspects in terms of the experimentation behind policymaking. There are aspects of that that may actually be good, where we learn in some contexts where different rules are set up in different jurisdictions, what may work better in both establishing public trust, enabling efficiency and public services to be served. But harmonization of the rules is definitely a goal. The more consensus there is across stakeholders from industry to government to the public and civil society, the better the stable environment for innovation. Mm, Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think another missing piece in innovation is making sure that we're being very ethical. And how are are there projects that you're involved with or your colleagues that are tackling AI ethics, as that's been a very big hot topic in the past year? Absolutely. And we see uh, AI ethics principles and guidelines being proposed on the government level and intergovernmental level such as the OECD principles that were released in May, as well as from companies who are releasing their own AI ethics guides, establishing councils for external advisory boards for some of their decision-making. One of the projects that I'm working on called Unlocking Public Sector Adoption of AI Through Government Procurement sees the opportunity of when governments act, uh, work as market actors in the purchasing decisions how the rules that they can attach to those purchases and the requirements. So we're developing guidelines for government procurement officials for the ethical and efficient purchasing of AI systems and algorithms being piloted this summer in the UK and we've in advanced conversations with several other countries about trying to implement these guidelines in one part of their procurement process and the way that our center works is in establishing policy norms for to address some of the governance gaps in the fourth industrial revolution is to pilot them and then reiterate and take those learnings from individual contexts where they're being tried out to have more uniform sets of norms and rules and standards that can apply everywhere. And hopefully some of these guidelines that we're developing will be taken up by many governments other than the 
several that we are trying to pilot in in the next several months. And why might it be important for uh, organizations with procurement to have standards on purchasing goods, particularly around AI systems? I think that before we're able to make decisions about what is ethical, we need to establish a process of what is being reported and what is being considered in the invitations to tender and how the requests for proposals are answered. And so the more that we can lay out some of the concerns that need to be taken into account when vendor is trying to sell to the government to explain how about the data quality, the possibility of bias in the system and how to possibly address it, to lay out a multidisciplinary team that looks at the issues from several different perspectives and um, establishes throughout the life cycle of the use of the product or service that will be used in practice. This is how establishing that process and making sure that this is being recorded and documented is the first step towards being able to make those kinds of ethical decisions. Mm, I think part of that is, as you mentioned before, Adon, with the OEDC, how Europe's been focused on these new AI ethics principles, which I think there's been a lot of new progress on that in May, but I've looked through the more than 70-page report and, and all these principles. Are there any that stood out for you as very important, or there was a principle that people stood by to remember, this is the key to being ethical with AI? What would you share with the audience? I think the issues surrounding bias and in regards to diversity as a fundamental aspect of ethics in this context is is an important point to consider that some of the problems that we encounter with the way that the systems work over time can be traced back to the initial ways in which the system learned and making sure that we really think through the representation of, of interests and perspectives and experiences in building that knowledge is key to do now because further down the line, some of these systems will be set and may sadly replicate some of the disparate impacts that we have in our systems from criminal justice system to, as I mentioned, how children are protected along those lines. So I think thinking through and understanding that diversity is a key principle that makes up ethical design of AI systems is an important point to carry. And what would diversity look like for those AI ethical systems? Does that mean let's have more women on the board of those processes? What else could diversity look like for when teams are thinking about how to develop their own AI? Well, I think in addition to making sure that there's representation on the people making the decisions, where the information is collected from, the people that are inputting and teaching the systems with their particular patterns to make sure that it's a diversified group of people that is being engaged is is crucial, especially as we've mentioned in the conversation thus far, how global these systems are, the extent to which they will be deployed in many different places where there are different cultural norms, different expectations, different understandings of what words mean. And so the greater breadth of input into the system that contemplates and takes into account a diverse range is better for the long-term sustainability of that solution. 
Yeah, that completely makes sense, especially with facial recognition. I know earlier you mentioned about how CIFAR is doing a lot in the space, but for those who don't know, you know, CIFAR has some classic data sets in AI and machine learning, CIFAR 10 and CIFAR 100, which originally came out from Jeffrey Hinton. And Jeffrey Hinton is one of the fathers of modern day machine learning. And it's amazing to see how the organizations who are doing work didn't just start in 2019. The research with AI has been going back for some even decades. Yeah, I think that's right. And we've seen many of these issues, as you've pointed out, are in some ways new, but in some ways extensions or modifications, variations of questions that we've had for a long time. AI, in fact, brings some fundamental questions in regards to the self-learning systems. It does not take long to get to questions of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to create? What is um, personhood and how is responsibility assigned to automated systems? Some of these questions go to the core of from the Bible and Greek philosophy been raised in regards to how we negotiate our world. So I know one of the main projects you're working on, you mentioned earlier, is Generation AI, and and you just mentioned now with the ethics part on personhood, and I think that's very similar to agency with children. How do we determine agency in the world of AI and machine learning? We have, you know, Google's coming out with Google Glass 2.0, where we're going to now have holograms that appear next to each other that show your social media feeds. So where does agency stop from being purely human, purely machine, perhaps a hybrid of both? These are great questions. There aren't currently, I think, easy answers for, but I think it's important to note that it does often depend on the context. When it's about, when the agency question has to do with whether or not a child is able to consent to some sort of uh, transaction that enables behavioral advertising, there's a certain level of agency that the law already deals with in regards to what is the age at which you, you have the agency to consent and how much of that is the responsibility of the parent and the child. And so those are certain aspects of agency. We also need to think about the problem differently in regards to liability of systems. When we get to complicated systems that implement AI into lethal autonomous weapons, it's crucial for us to maintain the space where responsibility is can still be assigned when it is divorced from human judgment and interaction becomes a unique problem when we're using these systems, especially having to do with consequences with grave physical harm. Using as a guideline the robots that Boston Dynamics works on, I saw a video earlier in May 2019 that they now have 10 robots who are able to together move an 18-wheeler as if you were Iron Men pulling the 18-wheeler, strongest champions, if you will. So with those breakthroughs we're seeing in robots so quickly, and a company like Boston Dynamics been around less than 10 years, the robots could previously barely even move. So this begs the question of thinking of Skynet and Terminator and and all these fun doomsday stories. But you mentioned lethal autonomous weapons. I mean, how close are we to seeing some of that militarized by the police or even by our armies? Well, I think it's already the case that our systems, I think you can actually describe going back to landmines being an automated weapon. And there have been efforts internationally to try to regulate and control the use of landmines as having inhumane effects. 
I think that when it's divorced from the actual intent and the context of, of conflict is particularly dangerous. I think that we're seeing more and more of that, and we do see an acceleration of innovation uh, the more that there are these systems being developed and the more that data is being shared and the more that there's greater awareness. And I don't think we are far off from very complicated decision-making being further and further enabled by machine learning. Let's turn our attention to data, as you mentioned, and all these systems in AI and ML are based on data. And the better the data you have and the better it's designed, ideally the better solutions you have. There's so much new technology happening today. You know, in Nepal, there are drones delivering precision medicine. They're, in fact, already doing that now with Amazon in Blacksburg, Virginia. They're now doing drone delivery. So what's your thoughts on drones, precision medicine, and other cutting-edge fields with uh, AI? Well, we actually have a project, my colleagues, on the Drones and Tomorrow's Airspace portfolio here at the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. We're actually a big part of using drones to deliver medicine, in particular blood in Rwanda. And some of that, as I've been mentioning throughout, has to do with getting some consensus around the rules. In order to be able to do this, there had to be aviation regulations that were complemented and that were updated to enable the kind of unmanned travel that is part of the drone delivery. And figuring out those rules, getting consensus about it, bringing the different stakeholders to the table, making sure that the companies developing those technologies are able to communicate with the regulators who are in charge of governing it, um, enables these kinds of uses to be backed by public trust and thoughtful uh, regulation and systems. Now, as someone here in the U.S., and probably many of our listeners have never been to Rwanda, and that's a country that, although traditionally has been plagued by a lot of disease and violence, I've heard it's gone through a huge transformation just in the last 10 years. It's becoming one of the technology leaders in Africa. A lot of new systems are in place, and particularly you mentioned about working with this precision medicine in work with blood. So we'd love to hear that uh, a little bit further, what you could share there. We see that in developing countries, there are often opportunities, what's often called leapfrogging, where some of the infrastructure that is in place for incumbent companies in what is so-called the so-called developed world, when that is less of an obstacle in introducing new technologies, there is an opportunity to move towards new and innovative uses of our emerging technology without having to consume the structures of what's already in place. And so there are lots of opportunities and very innovative solutions that happen sometimes in the case of Rwanda, as you mentioned, in places that have to catch up in regards to establishment of infrastructure in other contexts. I think that's really exciting that, you know, AI and machine learning is no longer a story of simply the United States and Europe and China, but the whole world is getting in on it. And it starts with our children, starts with the education, and sounds like now's the right time, right? I do a lot of training and teaching as well as yourself. So with digital literacy and with education moving online, how do you think that can help bridge the gap on AI and machine learning, especially in developing and frontier? nations. Well, thanks for that. Another project that one of my colleagues 
is working on is called Teaching AI Ethics. And we're trying to actually bring together some of the curricula that think about responsible use of AI and social and economic considerations and to integrate that into engineering and computer science graduate programs so that the people who are actually building the technology of the future start thinking about these issues as part of their learning of the design and the development and of technical instruction and creation, and that these considerations be part of the thought process from the beginning. And so getting those curricula from people already teaching these projects, these courses, and finding a way to package them in such a manner that they can be added to programs elsewhere, that kind of sharing of information enables especially with it being oriented towards advancing the public good, that it can be taken from places where there's cutting edge research and being able to share that knowledge and those constructs in places where it would be difficult to have those people, you know, go lecture in those particular schools and classes, being able to put together the kind of curricula and learning materials more broadly uh, enables a greater audience to have access to that. And what's the best way you think to impart that information? Would that be in case competitions, hackathons, accelerators, you know, graduate level students generally come in with some experience, but they're then ready to implement the results in startups and other companies? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I also am oriented towards as the center here is how it works in practice. And previous to working here, you mentioned my time at EFS and at Yale, but I also helped start a hackerspace in downtown Oakland called Pseudo Room. And I think that uh, that kind of experimental learning that is less structured and also quite innovative and, and being open-ended, these are there are opportunities for these kinds of teaching and kinds of discussions and kind of conversations to to be embedded uh, everywhere where technology is being developed. And I think the earlier that these conversations start, it shouldn't be something that is saved till later when you're a larger company and get a legal and policy team. Uh, this should be something that is embedded into the initial design. So we've had a lot of talk about privacy by design, and we're now beginning to talk more about ethics by design and that kind of thinking where the way it actually is structured from the beginning should contain these elements as well. You know, one final question that's been on my mind for a while is thinking about AI by design and particularly the term fourth industrial revolution and where that spawned from and, you know, where that creativity landed for the World Economic Forum to create the team that you're part of, Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Love to hear a little bit behind the design there as well. Sure. So, the notion from the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, who is the chairman, also a professor, wrote a book several years back on the Fourth Industrial Revolution, thinking through the fact that we had the different stages of technology development. And the one that we're currently in integrates the physical, the biological, the computational in this way where the convergence is creating all sorts of uh, exciting opportunities, but also social and economic challenges that can be addressed. And the idea behind the center that was created, and we have portfolio teams focused on everything from AI, like the team I'm on, and data policy, which I used to work in, to precision medicine and drones 
There's a 4IR for the Earth Project. There's one on autonomous vehicles and urban mobility. And trying to understand where are the governance gaps, because governments are having a hard time keeping up with these developments, and companies are looking for guidance on how best to make decisions. And so to fill in that governance gap, the C4IR, the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, is focused on implementing actual policy proposals and pilots with both companies and governments and making sure that they work in practice so that we can have models that can be then exported and used in other contexts. I'm excited to see where these models go and what context they'll be used in. I know we're just kicking off with some exciting trends in 2019 and AI is continuing to integrate. But I think, you know, Adon, all the initiatives you're sharing with the World Economic Forum, with the papers and policies coming out from the OECD, I think that's going to be instrumental for um, researchers like myself and individuals who are just trying to grapple on what is AI to be be better servants and leaders in this space. So I applaud all the work you're doing and thanks for helping us humans be further part of this conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity and appreciate your podcast and uh, thanks to your listeners for paying attention. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Aidan. Thank you. Hey, humans. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and if you like Humane, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Luminary. Thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode. New releases are every Tuesday. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.